Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me, as per usual, is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode LXVIII. One, two, three, yep. Never underestimate the Parthians. The reign of Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus quickly erupts into war, a state which will continue for the rest of their lives. The first threat the Empire encounters comes from the east, where the long-time enemy of the Romans, the Parthians, make their move. In a letter to Marcus Aurelius, his teacher and senator Fronto writes, It is the Parthians, unique among the races of men, which bear the title, The Enemy Who Must Never Be Underestimated. Here's Rhiannon Evans. So, when Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus become joint emperors, they inherit what seems to be the dream position because the Roman Empire has been at peace for 40 years. Mm. And I think this is where we, where part of that myth of the five good emperors kind of comes from, is this big period of peace right in the middle of it. Uh, which, you know, Rome is just constitutionally always at war. Not that there hadn't been any wars. Judea might have a problem with saying they'd been at peace for 40 years. But the last major dust-up was during the time of Hadrian, and it was with Judea. Mm. So since then, there would have been skirmishes around the fringes a little bit, but relative peace. Yes. It looks, however, at this point that there is trouble boiling up, which supposedly Antoninus Pius was worried about right at the end of his life on his very deathbed. Mm. Um, so while he had his fever, he became delirious and spoke about the Republic and the kings that he was annoyed about. And he's probably thinking of Parthia, which is a problem that's never really gone away, is Parthia for the Romans. Yeah. In that they've, they've had constant skirmishes, potential wars with Parthia, right back as far as the Republic. But we have had an apparent conquest of Parthia and then, you know, Hadrian gave it away because mm. he, he thought the empire was too big. And this does indeed boil up in, and maybe using the opportunity of Antoninus Pius being close to death, that the king of Parthia, who's called Vologases IV, he succeeds in uniting the two halves of the empire. So... This is something that needs to happen before Parthia can really become a problem for the Romans again. They come into Armenia, which at the time is a client kingdom of Rome, chuck out the king there, whom Rome has installed, and put their own in. Yeah. So this is kind of a tactic that the Romans play at as well all the time, which is they need to have control over an area that isn't necessarily part of their empire. And they do that by having someone sympathetic to them in charge. And if someone else nearby wants control instead, they'll get rid of that king and put their own man in charge. Mm, mm. So it's kind of regime change. So this is, uh, for argument's sake, day one of Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. Is suddenly the Parthians go, well, this is a good opportunity. Let's see if anybody notices what we do <laughs> over here in Armenia and see if there's a reaction from the new emperors to a flexing of muscles. Mm. Hell of a flex. So I'm, I'm probably downplaying that a bit there, but that's, it's that's what we're dealing it's with. It's a dangerous move. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that you could speculate that the fact that the Romans haven't been as much engaged in warfare as they had been in their history yeah. might encourage those at the fringes of empire to take that risk. So what were the Romans doing over there in the east then at that time? 
Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus don't really change anything at first. The people who Antonius Pius had put in charge in the East had been left there. So this, this is not unexpected. Is there generally a regime change? Um, not unless somebody is has made themselves unpopular with the person who succeeds as emperor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Severianus, who is the governor of Cappadocia, thinks that he can take on the Parthian threat. Right. And the reason for this, which sounds very strange to us, is that he's persuaded by a man, a very strange man called Alexander of Abontacus, who has kind of set himself up as an oracular power, a prophet. And he persuades Severianus that he can take the Parthians on. When you say a prophet, this is like somebody who's, who's building up a religion for himself in the area by the sounds of it. These are people in the life of Brian who are standing up and also preaching when Brian's holding the shoe? Um, yes, in terms of it being an unofficial cult that yeah. he has set up. He sets himself up as a priest of Asclepius, who's the god of medicine. And his kind of symbol is uh, a human-headed serpent. Serpents were always associated with medicine. Mm. But he doesn't really talk about cures or the gods were meant to, you know, you sleep in their temple overnight and you're cured. He's not really interested in that. He He's more interested in giving oracular advice, having influence presumably through this. Our only evidence about him, though, comes from a very hostile source called Lucian. Lucian, who's from Syria, and wrote in Greek, and he sees him as a false prophet, someone who preys on the weak-minded. Yeah. So the kind of follow-on from that is that from Lucian's perspective, Severianus is weak-minded to believe Alexander. Mm. You shouldn't really make military decisions based on somebody who is a self-confessed prophet. Sure, yeah, and maybe um, listen to the emperor. But Alexander became quite big in the area at the time, didn't he? And afterwards, yeah, yeah. He continues to be influential in that area for a period of 20 years. Yeah. And the sources we've got on him are written after he's dead when he can't respond. Our written sources are hostile, but there are coins mm. that seem to have been issued by Alexander, and there are images of him on gemstones, and there are inscriptions that talk about him. So, you know, it's not just a small band of followers. He yeah. seems to have had quite a widespread influence. So maybe, you know, Severianus wasn't quite as... It's not like he's just joined some kind of death cult. He's actually part of a wider movement yeah. that was typical of what had been happening a couple of centuries earlier with the rise of Christianity. Do you want a Game of Thrones reference here? Oh, go on then. He's a servant of the Lord of the Light. Okay. Yeah. Severianus gets some really bad advice from the prophet Alexander and decides to go and deal with the Parthian yes. problem. If there was anything to Alexander, then this is not good evidence for it yeah. because it's a disaster. And uh, the Romans don't like disasters. They don't have them very often because the whole army is massacred by the Parthians and Severianus kills himself. Okay, so Severianus is unsuccessful and the Parthians must be feeling pretty good there about their success. So Marcus Aurelius is back in Rome. What is his reaction? He decides that he has to send somebody close to his family. He sends his cousin, who's called Lebo, out to deal with what the Parthians have done coming into Armenia. Um, but then he also clearly feels that he needs to send someone with a bit higher status and more authority. Mm. So fairly quickly he sends the co-emperor, Lucius Verus, off yeah. to Parthia. This is the good part about having two emperors, I suppose. One can sit back in Rome and manage the entire empire from there, and the other can go and clean up any Parthian problems that may be persisting. <laughs> yeah, and it seems... 
Marcus Aurelius is very good at that domestic administration. And also there are a couple of theories as to why Lucius Ferris is the one who goes. The nicer reading is that Lucius Verus being co-emperor is, you know, it's sending the person from the top, real imperial authority. Mm. And Lucius Verus, who is still a youngish man, that he will get some experience of the world. He'll get some military experience out of this. The Historia Augusta, which always takes the negative line, says that Marcus Aurelius just wants him away from Rome so he can be debauched somewhere else. Um, you know, not kind of bringing down the name, the imperial name amongst the Romans. Yeah. So yeah. it's a kind of, at least do it at arm's length, not here. All right. So some real world experience then for Lucius Verus. So he heads over to Parthia in 162, but he kind of takes his time getting there, doesn't he? Yeah, it's a bit of a long journey. Yeah. He sort of takes the scenic route. He's not on a arrow's path to the, the scene of conflict. He goes to a lot of Greek cities, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, which is in Turkey, Pamphylia, Sicilia, uh, Cilicia, and eventually he gets to Syria, to Antioch, which is close to the action. Is this like a, a gap year? Or are, they, are these tourist traps that he's going to? Yeah, absolutely. He's, yeah. he's hitting the hotspots. He's enjoying himself along the way, according to our sources. He has musicians and singers around him. It's a kind of triumphal procession before anything's even happened but a, a very low down version of that yeah. um, because all of the descriptions of what he does while he's away tend to emphasize that he hangs around with low status people which we've seen in the past is bad news for an emperor in terms of his reputation in basically senatorial sources yeah so he arrives in antioch in 163 so you know roughly a year after he left rome Mm. So, it's, you know, it's like traveling on the trains in Britain. Having reached Antioch, uh, how does he handle the war? He kind of exempts himself from it and sends other people in. So he hangs around with uh, a mistress who he takes out there who is lowborn, the mm. sources stress. She actually tells him to shave his beard off, which he does. Yeah. So he's under the thumb. And, you know, the beard is the mark of being an Antonine emperor. So that's bad news. Even the Syrians are making fun of him. And the word even is is quite apposite there because from the point of view of Roman sources, the Syrians were kind of, you know, these wild living Easterners with very loose morals. Oh, so if so if the Syrians are making Syria, fun of you then yeah. then you know you're really overdoing you're in it. Trouble. A bit. Okay. <laughs> um and he he's just enjoying himself in luxury gambling, playing dice all night, hanging around with actors, yeah. low, low, low status people. And waiting for results from the chariot races in Rome. So that's what he's missing from Rome. And he needs to know how the Greens, his team, are doing. He's interested in this sporting activity and not in the progress of the war. He's very good at delegating. Um, he sent in Statius Priscus, Avidius Cassius and Marius Verus to take care of the war. Okay. All right. So, so completely delegating to, to capable men, at least by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, he's. I suppose he's picked the right people or he happens to have them on hand, mm. but he's not kind of at the front of the line by any means. This leads us to 163 with the Parthian War starting in proper at this point. Well, Priscus, one of those delegatees, goes into Armenia, which, remember, is the client kingdom that's been invaded, as it were, or at least uh, taken over by the Parthians. Um, he goes in in 163 and easily beats the Parthians with just two legions drives the Parthians out of Armenia after taking the capital 
And Lucius Verus is very happy with this, mm. having not had a part in it. But he takes the honor anyway and takes the name Armeniacus. Right. So he takes this honorific fourth name. We get a new capital which the Romans established, but this being the east, they give it a Greek name. So it's called Kainepolis, which means new city. And I suppose that could be the end of it all, mm. but mm. it isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at this point, uh, the king Vologasus and the Parthians have taken some territory. The Romans had taken it back. We could say no harm done. Let's all go back behind our respective lines and not go to war any further at this point, but that's not what happens. The Parthians respond by kind of doing the same thing again, but in a different place. Yeah. So they they invade uh, another city. They invade Osroini, which is the capital of a, a Roman client area uh, in Mesopotamia. So they kind of go somewhere else in the region to annoy the Romans. Mm. And really, the, all these client kingdoms are what's left after Trajan has sort of semi-conquered the area and then Hadrian pulled back from it. So these are areas of Roman authority and the Parthians are just trying to pick them off. So that's a kind of another dig at the Romans, another come and get us. Um, and the Romans have to respond eventually, but there's a bit of a gap where no one's really doing anything. They're just posturing against one another, yeah. um, waiting for what will happen next. Uh, Lucius Verus offers surrender terms. So he says, do you want to surrender to us, to Vologasus? But Vologasus says, no. Yeah. He's in a relatively strong position, even though he's been driven out of Armenia. So it's, it's a piece of diplomacy that fails on the part of Lucius Varus. So they spend about most of 164 posturing at each other, more or less, I suppose. But in this time, Lucius Varus takes the time to, to go and do something which I suppose is expected of him. Yes. Um, I mean, he's 31, so yeah. and it's time he got married. So Lucilla, Marcus Aurelius's daughter, is sent out to the east to marry him. He actually meets her more or less halfway in Ephesus. And the Historia Augusta speculates that this is because he doesn't want the wedding party to see the terrible debaucheries that he's getting up to in Syria. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he's kind of heading them off <laughs> in uh, Western Turkey. Lucilla is about 15 at this point, which is a pretty normal age for a, a, an elite Roman woman to get married. She does go back to Syria, to Antioch with Lucius Verus, where she gives birth to their first child, a daughter. The daughter dies fairly young, which is the case with all three of their children. Okay, so that's uh, 164. In 165, it comes to head again with the Parthians. And I guess, once again, Lucius Verus is taking a bit of a supervisory role to things. I mean, I know you laugh at supervisory, but is it common for this kind of thing for a Roman emperor to be so far back from the front lines? Or is this just Lucius Verus being negligent? I'm just trying to get a gauge of how much the Augustan histories has it in, I suppose, you know, because this could be completely normal. Given that he's gone out to the region, you would expect him to be closer to the action. Yeah. All right. So he's staying in a very safe place in Syria. If it's true that he was spending his time carousing and gaming and so on, then that's a pretty bad look. That might be entirely an invention of the Augustan history. It's true. The fact that it's these generals who seem to have taken the initiative doesn't reflect well on Lucius Verus. All right. So what do the generals do then at this point? Well, the general in charge now uh, is Avidius Cassius. And Avidius Cassius is responsible for forcing the Parthians back. So he forces them out of Osroene. 
and he actually continues it so he could stop there he's he's kind of reversed what they've done but he goes further into parthian territory yeah. which is the great prize this is why i think it's surprising that lucius verus isn't there because this is what the romans have been trying to do for so long and they sort of do it a little bit periodically and then they'll get forced out or there's a defeat, sometimes a terrible defeat. So if he were there, this would be an enormous potential for glory for him. But it's Avidius Cassius who's actually there. And he comes to these two important cities in Mesopotamia called Seleucia and Ctesiphon. You know, Mesopotamia is the, it's the land of the two rivers. One yeah. of those rivers is the Tigris. He then takes Ctesiphon and the Romans burned down the royal palace. Whereas Seleucia is a slightly different uh, situation because that's uh, a Greek-founded city founded by one of Alexander's generals where the Seleucid dynasty was begun. Yeah. And the inhabitants are really still ethnically Greek, even after all of these centuries. And we're talking five centuries. Sure. So they're actually quite welcoming to the Romans. But the Romans uh, sack the city anyway. So they throw open the door, welcoming, come yeah. in and know me better kind of welcoming. <laughs> and they got sacked in return. Yeah. So this is a very bad look for the Romans mm. because they may not have the same standards of conflict that we would expect. But if you're laying siege to a city or attacking a city and the inhabitants say, okay, and they basically surrender, yeah. then sacking the city is not okay. It's, it's not the norm. So whose responsibility does that decision lie with? Because it was Avidius Cassius who was making the calls here, I suppose. But ultimately, this falls on the head of Lucius, doesn't it? He's the one who gets the, the bad reputation for it. It's a black mark on his character yeah. because the buck stops with him. The fact that he's not there means that he can't make that decision. In the eyes of tradition, it is his fault. It's his fault for not being there in the first place. Yeah. The Historia Augusta sort of makes a moral line, I think, between this action of destroying a city that has surrendered and opened its doors and what happens afterwards, the Antonine Plague. So it kind of makes a direct connection. The Romans acted as, badly. As in this is punishment yeah. for what you did. Yeah, exactly. This is this is a kind of moral retribution for it. Because the plague is supposed to have come out of, of this area of Babylonia, although the connection is made in a way you might find a little difficult to swallow, when a pestilential vapor escaped from a golden casket in the Temple of Apollo, which a soldier had by chance cut open. The plague came out of this casket and into Parthia and then on to the Romans. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's omen. That's straight away out of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Well, I would say the other way around that probably Indiana Jones <laughs> pinched it from here. Obviously, it sounds supernatural and slightly ridiculous to us. But the thing is, at least some of the sources are making that connection, which shows us that this action of destroying Seleucia was not morally right. So at this point, the Romans have, have won. They've won their war in Parthia. Yeah, it's it's pretty much over. This yeah. um, conflict continues in a small way for another year. But, but they claim the, victory now. The main victory has happened, and yeah. we can tell that because Lucius takes the title Parthicus Maximus. Yeah. It'd be quite normal to take the name of the place where the conquest has happened. As we've seen, a little bit of doubt about Lucius' involvement. Um, but Parthicus Maximus means the greatest Parthian, the biggest and best of all. Well, considering the build-up that Parthia's had as being an enemy of Rome, 
I can see why you might take something extra grand. <laughs> yes, it's a big victory in many ways yeah. um, because it builds on centuries of hostility, centuries of problems that the Romans have had with the Parthians. Lucius actually takes on other titles as well. So in 166, Cassius goes over the Tigris into Medea and Lucius takes an, an additional title, which is Mediarchus. Yeah. So wherever Cassius goes and conquers, Lucius gets another name. So he it's just like, likes ordering the extra business cards, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> so now Parthia actually surrenders. It is defeated? Yeah. Parthia's been defeated, and they have to make a treaty. And as part of that, they have to give something up. They have to give up Western Mesopotamia to the Romans. Yeah. And the Romans kind of make themselves a little buffer zone by turning Armenia into a province rather than just a client kingdom so they can actually have legions there. Yeah. And they can stop this from happening again is the idea. Um, and that means that the empire has been extended after a long period of that not happening. So the last time we saw anything really happen with the empire, it was decreasing when Hadrian gave away bits of Trajan's conquests sure, in this yeah. region, in fact. Yeah. And so this is quite a big moment for the Romans. Uh, it's a slight increase in empire. I don't know if it's what Marcus Aurelius really wanted to be doing. He doesn't show much enthusiasm for building empire, but it, it's, it's a popular move amongst the masses who like to see Roman power entrenched. Mm. Now, Marcus Aurelius, during this time, he has a complete right to take on any of these names that Lucius Verus has been taking on, but he, he hasn't been, has he? No, and this is, he kind of feeds into a tradition of emperors who are humble, mm. um, but I think he does it in the biggest way, in that he doesn't really want any of these titles, and he has to be forced by the Senate to take Parthicus, but apparently he gave that up again when Lucius Verus died in 169. So he's not interested in glory for its own sake, which is perhaps part of his philosophical background uh, in that he's more interested in substance than than the surface of things. Mm. So I guess these two different ways of approaching triumph from Lucius Verus, who's just collecting the titles like little tokens, and Marcus Aurelius, who isn't interested, show us the big distinction that's made between these two emperors by the ancient sources. So you mentioned triumph, so let's have a triumph. Lucius Verus goes back to Rome, reluctantly, I understand, and, and has his triumph, doesn't he? He'd much rather hang out in Syria. Yeah. Uh, but yes, he gets to have a triumph, and this is important. And Marcus Aurelius, again, doesn't really want to be part of that, but has to be persuaded to. I get the feeling that he's the kind of person that, and this perhaps explains why he's happy with the dual emperor arrangement. He wants to share the glory. He brings his children in on the triumph. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want the spotlight on him, including his unmarried daughters, um, which is quite surprising because usually girls aren't marched along in a triumph unless they're defeated queens. He's sort of making it more of a family occasion. Yeah. <laughs> Let's celebrate having killed lots of people. Hmm. <laughs> and as part of a triumph, you put on gladiatorial and other kinds of games, entertainments for the people. Marcus Aurelius is very much concerned with domestic administration and safety and so when they put on tightrope walkers, he makes sure there are mattresses beneath them. All right. He seems to be someone who goes around making sure things are right and safe. <laughs> He's sort of big on civic domestic policy. This is 166. So the Parthian War is, is over. The menace has been dealt with, if I can put it that way. But there isn't peace for very long. 
No, and it's probably connected to the Parthian War because troops had been moved around. They needed legions in the east. Yeah. And that means they'd taken them away from the northern borders, which is their other area of of concern always with the Germani, the Germanic tribes. And so shortly after that, we get trouble, as it were, for the Romans coming from the Marcomanni, who mm. are a Germanic people, which will really take up the rest of Marcus Aurelius's reign. So the hope for um, sending Lucius Verus over to Parthia was that he'd get the wildlife shaken out of him, I suppose. Uh, was that effective at all? Or No, he brought it back with just, him even yeah. worse. He learnt new things out in the East, <laughs> according to the Augustan history, I should always add. Yeah. He brought back with him the habits of gambling all night and apparently a Syrian cookshop or tavern, which he had kind of installed in his house. And he carried on having parties till dawn and really living the playboy lifestyle. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, where reviews are appreciated. Tell us what you think about what's been hitting your ears. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, the Antonine Plague sweeps through the Empire. I'll leave you with a quote from Lucius Verus, which he writes in a letter to Fronto. My achievements, of whatever kind, are only as great as they actually are, but they can seem as great as you want them to seem. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.